Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. We are on to episode 114. So interesting fact, the United States has spent over $1 trillion on drug enforcement since President Nixon declared a war on drugs. And really, by any measure, that crisis has become worse. So today I interview the authors John Halpern and David Blistein about their book, Opium, How an Ancient Flower Shaped and Poisoned Our World. And uh, they talk about the history of opium and the reasons they wrote this book and the call for compassion and care of people who are struggling with addiction. A great read and a great interview. I think you're going to enjoy this one a lot. Also, before we start, don't forget, please share this podcast with a friend or rate and review us in iTunes. I really do appreciate that a lot. Helps get us a lot of exposure and uh, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everyone, let's start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I am here with John Halpern and David Blistein, and we are going to talk about their book, Opium, How an Ancient Flower Shaped and Poisoned Our World. All right, you guys want to introduce yourselves and, and start this off and tell us a little bit about what motivated you guys to write this book and uh, put it out there. Who wants to start? Well, I'll start. This is John Halpern. I'm a physician. I'm a psychiatrist focused on treatment of people with substance use disorders, as well as other psychiatric disorders, which then get commingled into being called dual diagnosis, as opposed to just accepting, of course, these are all disorders of brain pathology. Um, right. You can get into other philosophical issues. But I spent my training and almost 20 years in the Harvard system in research at McLean Hospital, focused on treatment of addiction. I worked with uh, Jack Mendelson, who's the last, I was his last student to gain a professorship uh, before he passed away. And he 
um, among other things, was the first person to publish on alcoholism as a disease rather than a, just a social problem, um, which was a very controversial thing in the late 60s and still sadly can be controversial with some, and also developed a lesser known medication called buprenorphine, Suboxone. Yeah, no, so right, he right. sat on the okay. Nobel Selection Committee. He was a great professor friend of mine. And, and of course, my other great mentor was um, his wife, Nancy Mello, and, and uh, Harrison Pope, another very famous name in addiction research. And I was always fascinated with, um, can we develop medications to treat addiction? And so I found a really fantastic column at, the, at Harvard's uh, Alcohol and Drug Abuse Research Center for many years. And got very, of course, frustrated also being an active clinician, treating people with substance use disorders at how we treat people and how the cycle seems to keep repeating itself. And right over and over again. Well, this has bothered me so much. David Blistein sought me out and proposed that we work on a project to really update like books like uh, Andy Weil's fantastic book, From Chocolate to Morphine, something that really is encyclopedic that reviews the, the issues around drugs and presents it in a very dispassionate, straightforward way. Um, and, and let's see what we can learn from trying to present things in a very honest and direct way. I mean, if you really think about it, just listening to drug abuse messages out there, you'd think nobody would ever become addicted to anything because th- these drugs are all bad. So right, right. we have to have an honest discussion about what these drugs do as well. And I think there is no greater story than around the history behind opium. And we got requested as the, I think the opioid pandemic caught a hold in the last presidential election cycle four years ago. And me being very cynical, thinking that it just will come and go as they always do with these politicians around the election year. They're interested in doing something for drug addiction. And then a year later, they're all gone, nowhere to be found. But this time there's so many people dying of the, in the opioid epidemic that we have right Right. now. It stayed on a front as a front burner issue. And we adjusted our proposal to be specific to the history of opium. And I'm really proud of us that we did just that. So why don't we let David pick up from there? Yeah. Yeah. David, introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm David Blistein. I've been a writer for a long time, 40 years. I've written about all kinds of things from ball bearings to opium and many things in between. And uh, to my own experiences with uh, drugs, both legal and illegal, I got, I've always been really fascinated with how we use them to change our minds. And after I wrote a book about depression, which had a lot to do with uh, psych- psychiatric drugs, I decided, because I was working with some kids in the courts as a volunteer, and I said, kids need to know the facts. And it had been a while. There are some good books, a book called Buzz that came out maybe 15 years ago. Kids need, just they just need facts. They have the right to have the facts. Right. So I wanted to, and then I also had this other idea for a book called Changing Your Mind, Changing Our Minds, which is how people boys want to use substances to change their minds. So, and the one on, for kids, was going to be the zero brain on drugs. So I was doing all this research and, uh, talked to someone and they said, yeah, what we really want is a book on opium. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the credentials to talk scientifically or did, did I want to have the uh, the details? So it, it worked out well. I like history. I like checking out these things. I love uh, the irony of social movements of which there are uh, many examples in the history of opium. So it, it really worked out pretty well. It was nice. It fascinating. And it's a fascinating story. I mean, it it's down. a great story. I, I actually listened to the book. I usually listen to most of my books. So I, I just finished it. 
And one of the first things that came to me in in reading it was like, I kind of understood that there was this history of opium, that opium's been around, but but what I didn't realize is how much it shaped society and culture. And so I, I would love to ask you, like, as you guys did this book and started writing this history, what did you guys find and what was your insights as you did that? Well, that was, you know, that was the thing. One, to find out how far it went back in history, two, to realize that it was a coin, you know, it was like there's gold or there's ivory and there's other things that it would move trade. And it's pretty obvious you live in the inner city that <laughs> drugs are part of the economic life. It's been part of the economic life. John actually has done a lot of research with uh, hallucinogens, the psychotropics in, in uh, right. uh, indigenous cultures too. So this has always been around. People want to change their minds. And more than anything, people have wanted to deal with pain for good reason. And this was the best painkiller, I think, for many, many years. And still morphine, I guess, is one of the best uh, derivative. So it was just fascinating to find how, how humans have ridden the edge of palliative and addiction for so long. And we ain't right. getting out of it anytime soon. Well, actually, John might know if we can, but it's been going on a long time. It's kind of part of being human, this idea of, of shifting how we feel. And when we have these uncomfortable states, wanting to change it in some way, because they're uncomfortable. We don't like them. I think people have a hard time accepting just how popular these medications were in from ancient times on forward. I mean, for 5,000 years, virtually the only antidepressant we had was opium. Opiates right. do treat depression, but we don't prescribe them anymore for depression, basically, because we have modern medications that can work. Opium and opiates will work for depression, but tolerance builds. And that's hence the term of chasing the dragon. You're just trying to get to a place of norm of normalcy, including if you are with a recurrent major depressive disorder, and then you have to keep going to a higher and higher dose to achieve that relief from depression. And next thing you know, you have all the side effects of heavy dose addiction, which is if you, you go into withdrawal, if you don't have it, you're constipated, you're going to be um, cognitively slow, dulled, less, less arousable, all the issues of, of high dose opiate use that's there. But literally for 5,000 years, that was one of the common treatments, the only one really to help treat what was described as depression, even though it wasn't codified and said, this is an illness called depression. There was other names for it. And I think the other kind of remarkable thing that stuck out to me was Maimonides, who's also, among other things, of being a great philosopher and religious scholar, was an important physician. The, the refrain that you should never withhold opium from a dying, suffering person. Right, yeah. Some of these, these doctors from a long time ago, more than a thousand years ago, and yet they zeroed in clinically on many of the same truths that we know today about these substances. So, you know, a drug is not a drug is not a drug. How people get addicted to each drug is different. And our understandings of the impact they have on, on us also can be different. The powerful message of the history of opium to me is that it's a story also of the power to relieve pain. Right, yeah. Osler, William Osler, this guy, one of the founders, I think of Johns Hopkins, one of the most famous doctors of the late 1800s, early 1900s, called it God's own medicine. At the same time as social reformers were calling it a scourge and a lot of other worse names, 
so it, you know, doctors have always realized it, and middle ages doctors realized the line. They realized right. the line, walking the line. Now, of course, people think that if you ever do oxycodone for pain, the next thing you know, you're going to be in a rehab center, right? And it's 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 not true, but it's walking the line. It's walking that line. And, and, you know, I think that's such an important point where as human beings, you know, there, there, there is a lot of good to, to these drugs. They're, they're important. They're needed in, in many different areas, but like you said, walking that line. And as you put it out in the book, you can see a lot of the different people in there doing that, you know, and some people being functional and non-functional. Can you talk about that a little bit too? Well, it's one of gradation, right? Right. Um, there's an inherent flaw in in these medications, which is its addictive potential. And yet we have not been able to achieve something comparable to re replace them in the pharmacopoeia. You know, just going back to an earlier point that David mentioned that, you know, is, could we ever see, imagine a time where, where we're, humanity is finally free of these substances? And I, I think that we're starting to enter that era high computational throughput uh, ability to develop thousands and thousands of annual analogs of a substance using very complicated programming, but but it works. Um, That's why I'm a doctor on this, a scientist, because I would have never been able to say that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> You're right. But another one is like, for example, we mentioned near the end of the book, um, the potential of peptides to replace opiates. And there's real incredible work being done for many years about this, the these encephalins and other opioid-like substances that the, our brain either produces or reacts to, much like an opiate, suggest that we may one day find a compound that will offer pain relief without tolerance and without the risk right. of overdose. And then there'll be no more need for these opiates. It will push them into completely just something that is illicit. And I think when people can understand that we have something that works much better, even those that are addicted, it, it, it will finally, as a, a species, evolve away from this flower. But this, for now, we are tethered much more tightly to the opium plant, a plant that does not even exist in the wild today more than ever. And right. I think that surprises people as well. So I think that the whole thing of you know being incapacitated or not, the whole point of gradation of this is how do we have these type of conversations like what we're just having right now? And how do we have them so that we can you know defang the all the stigma that's attached with this? It, it, should somebody be destroyed when they have a motor vehicle accident with a crush inju injury that's extremely painful with multiple surgeries and they get prescribed Percocet? oxycodone, oxycontin, other very powerful opiates, and they wind up getting addicted to it, then all of a sudden they're treated in the system as the criminal, as the person to be rejected. Right. Oh, they, their pill count went was too short, too quick. They're cut off suddenly. As if, how about it was the fact that it was raining too much outside and they had some arthritic-like pain on top of it. They were in just in horrible pain, but they were supposed to call the doctor, get permission to take a little bit more. They couldn't reach the doctor. The doctor's not calling back because the, the COVID-iacy has every, all of us working extra hours as it is, but the person who gets blamed is the one who's suffering. And I think David and I share a, a real strong reaction that whatever we need to do politically or as a society about these issues of drug abuse should not be legislated onto the backs of our patients suffering and pain. And that's what still is happening. 
totally, so. totally agree with you. You said something earlier and you're and you know in reading this book it really speaks to that he said we're you know how we've been tethered to this like that this is an important part uh opium and this flower is an important part of our human species almost in a way we've evolved with it uh as a way to manage these situations and it really as i as i read your book and and kind of got closer to the end this real compassionate stance of understanding human suffering and putting it in the context of opium and the importance and, and that this is just not a black and white issue. And it gets framed that way in our society. I, I re even remember when I started working in the addiction field back in the day and I was in a mandated program for for drug treatment or you know prison or drug drug treatment and most of the people that were coming in were nonviolent offenders you know uh, didn't you know didn't want to harm anybody didn't want to hurt anybody yet they were thrown in this situation that just made it so much worse like they, they really wanted to get help I mean that was so it was a completely frustrating experience for me they don't belong in the criminal justice system. I mean, that's so clear. Yeah. And, you know, they tried. It's very interesting. Uh, another line uh, that John can talk to is they tried this thing with drug courts, this idea of drug courts. Right. So, but it gets black and white. Oh, if you enter treatment, then we won't send you to jail. Well, that's nice. Uh, the largest the, the largest drug abuse place in the country is the Cook County Jail. You know, so that was a good idea. But then as John explained to me, because I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. He said, yeah, since when did judges know enough to be doctors? Right, right, exactly. They're, they're prescribing a solution to you. And then maybe you don't need rehab. Maybe you need something else. Who knows? But they're saying, do this. Otherwise, you end up in the worst possible place for an addict. Right. It's coerced and, and, treatment. Go ahead. It's coerced treatment. So a judge says, you can go to jail or you can get diverted to a drug rehab. Who, what, what person who's facing jail time is going to pick the drug rehab? Exactly. I have patients who have come to these rehabs who have no drug addiction, but they feigned one so they can get the diversion rather than go to jail. And I've had people who have absolutely zero interest in recovery, but because of diversion, they're forced to get a, a court-ordered treatment, and then they ruin it for everybody who's genuinely wanting to be wants there. Wants to be there and wants so to help and wants to make change. Drug, I, I consider drug court a human rights crime. Because it's doc, because we have prosecutors and judges pretending that they can practice medicine when they have no training in it. I know it's well-meaning. Do I believe in drug court that it diverts people from needless jail? Yes, and I'm so glad that that I have patients right. that are not going to jail. That's missing the point. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you, well, you and, see and, this in your in your book as as you guys put this out. This war on drugs uh, is just it's a war on uh, us. Yeah. It's it's a it's a pointless endeavor, and it, it causes so much suffering. It's a pointless endeavor when you have one opium poppy, one pod, just from one flower contains fifty thousand seeds. Right, one pod. How are we ever going to be successful in interdiction? How how are we ever going to stamp out the growth of of something where just one flower can populate several acres of, of poppies for the next generation and it grows in arid conditions with doesn't need much water it's a you know it's a ditchweed type of type of plant that can grow anywhere and you see right. these pictures of marines walking through you listen we have a great 
picture became kind of famous Marines walking through a poppy field in, in Afghanistan. And I asked a friend who was Marine, I don't know if he was there, but he said, well, you know, you can't take it away from them because then they'll join the Taliban. But if you don't take it away from them, they'll make drugs that turn into money that end up in the hands of the Taliban. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Right. It's, as long as it's interdicted, it's worth a lot of money. Exactly. You know, it exactly. runs exactly. You know, so it corrupts really, politics. It corrupts governments. It corrupts. It corrupts at, at all levels. Such money. You know, we had the Iran Contra scandal, scan, right. scandal with the uh, Contras getting um, weapons, and that was with fueled with illegal drug money that the CIA did. Even the Iraq War that we had, General Ahmed Rashid Dostum is the factional warlord of Mazar Sharif, the second largest city of Afghanistan and the capital of heroin out of out of Afghanistan but the enemy of my enemy is my friend so since Dostum was a, a supporter of the United States we didn't go after him he just controls 800 metric tons of heroin but he's right. our ally so yeah. he's right. untouchable so yeah so trying to keep the trying to stamp this out put this war on this drug just amplifies that to the nth degree you well, also talk while our families suffer right why innocent people suffer, suffer. i'm yes. not advocating that we just you know give up the fight i'm saying you know let's double down on good let's yes. stop doubling down on bad you're talking about precious dollars being thrown at this um david could point out it's been it's like a drop in the ocean how much money is being spent by our government and this world in actually providing respectful proper treatment for these illnesses. And then we turn around without providing proper treatment and then we punish people for not accepting treatment or seeking it out. In the United States right now, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration admits that like there's over 90% of people in the United States who would like to get service have no ability to get treatment. It's, right. it's a big uphill battle in this country. And we have an insurance system that also is set up to carve out treatment for behavioral issues. And they're even, they can be even more draconian for substance abuse. Example, right now, I have to get prior authorizations from most insurance companies for sublocade, a once a month injection of Suboxone. So, huh, let's see. It, it costs, it'll, it'll cost, yeah, 1100 to 1500 bucks a month to pay for that darn injection versus four or 500, I think, for just the oral preparation. But we go to the monthly injection. Now people wake up without sweats, without thinking of craving on their brain, that they have to get their fix or get their Suboxone. There's right, no more diversion right. to the street. They're actually, oh, they want to quit? Ah, well, guess what, buddy? It's in your system for a month and it's going to leach out over several months. You're kind of blocked anyway. And hopefully you'll come to your senses in that time. It's saving lives. Yeah. Why is there a prior authorization block on giving sublocate to anybody? It's crazy. I'm, you know, I, I think about this, and I, I, I've thought about this a lot too. And when you look at addiction, I, I think about it. It's, it's based on an old paradigm thought of like human behavior of this idea of free will that somehow we're just gonna, we just have this, we have the ability to just make choices. And I think, I, I hope that that's slowly changing as we understand the brain and that we're way more complex than that kind of black and white thinking. But I think it goes back to those days where we thought we could just punish people to get them to change or well, we can punish lock some them up. People, not others, right? right. Nobody is oh, denying yeah. um, tobacco smokers treatment for lung cancer because, well, 
he wouldn't get the lung cancer probably yeah. if he didn't smoke tobacco. Nobody's telling a coal miner, sorry, you got right. black lung disease. Nobody told you to go be a coal miner. You never would have developed black lung disease unless you chose this. But, but you know, something the last yeah. time I checked, I never, I have yet to meet anybody who says, you know, someday I was thinking when I grow up, one day I'll become an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So why treat people? with these substance use disorders as if it's 100% volitional. Are we going to start punishing people that are overweight for their mm -hmm. obesity because nobody told them to eat? I mean, that's ridiculous. We're not going to do that to people. I'm not suggesting it, but I am suggesting that you, that you welcome in people with substance abuse issues for being the human beings that they are with the problems that they have. We all have problems and we need to treat them with respect and love and understanding and learn from them. Absolutely. And some and countries have. That. I mean, some countries have. Portugal, Portugal has 2% of the deaths since they decriminalized all drugs. Portugal has 2% of the deaths of uh, the United States. And then you have places, a whole more controversial thing of the safe injection sites, where essentially people are going off to work every day. They're getting their fix because that's what works. It works in British Columbia, it works in Germany. John has a lot of colleagues that are, are doing this. I mean, People have worked, I mean, Marcus Aurelius, one of the famous philosophers of all time, was prescribed maintenance doses of opium by one of the most famous doctors of all time. And he led the right. Roman Empire and was a good one and a good writer. Right. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not encouraging it, but once you do get, you know, once you're on that path, I mean, people are quite happy having you take Adderall every day. Right. You right. know, Adderall can be pretty addictive, you know, so it's, it's pure prejudice about what, it's just, it's crazy. And John's right. The insurance thing is nuts. The parity law um, comes close to dealing with it, but doesn't deal with it effectively. No. And that's one of our big hopes. And as we haven't gotten into, but we know it's coming down the pike with uh, after the COVID pandemic's over, we'll realize that our opioid epidemic went through the know, roof. Whatever it is, John probably sees it already. You know, uh, this, this, uh, this idea of escaping pain, right? I mean, as human beings, when we're in pain, you know, we want out. You know, we want a way out and we need to treat that with compassion and kindness and and love and understanding and, and help each other through that. I, I, I totally get that. I agree with you. I think it's going to be we're going to see it, you know, and if we if we could help so many people if we took this stance. And I, I think as, as I read your book, I just even became more. I mean, I was already kind of in this in this vein as well, but it really became more apparent as it's laid out over time and you see it. And you see it in the way in which you guys put it out there. It just paints that picture, and um, it's really powerful to this message that you guys are are trying to share and bring out to the world. I'm concerned about where's the next Purdue going to come from, yeah. because I don't believe anything in that settlement. All those billions getting thrown all over across the country is going to do anything to prevent the emergence of the next one, and the cycle happens again. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who are listening and don't understand what you're saying? Can, can you describe that a little bit more and, and what that is about? So there's a cycle of within medicine in our relationship with the treatment of pain. And there was in the 80s um, a proper recognition that there was an under uh, treatment of pain. People are calling it like the seventh, you know, the sixth sense is the right. pain sense even. Vital sign, vital sign, yeah. Yeah, and Purdue came along and represented their powerful new opiate, um, OxyContin, 
that it would be less addictive because it's just so potently as a, you know, potent as a pain reliever that there's no chance even of really a person becoming addicted. And they spent a fortune doing campaigns towards patients, but really rolled out um, a huge campaign with doctors promoting um, its safety profile, minimizing its addictive profile, and of course, having good evidence saying that, you know, this really isn't that much different than any other opiate. And it's kind of right. fanciful to think of. But, but they glommed on at just that right time that there was this public health message that doctors are not properly treating pain. So then there's this huge swing of the pendulum in which opiates wound up getting vastly overprescribed. And then this epidemic started, especially with like doctor mills, with like right. huge percentages coming out of Flor the state of Florida and West Virginia and Ohio. There's it's just it, and, and people started dying with overdoses from this in huge numbers. And, and as the country started to get a handle of what a huge mistake this endeavor was, sadly, illicit manufacturing moved on from just presenting heroin to the public, but also increasingly fentanyl, right? And, which is very cheap to synthesize. And so the problem kind of percolated into something even bigger. But um, Purdue Pharma basically has accepted responsibility for promoting a drug uh, as safer than it should have been and have gone bankrupt and have given up multiple billions pers in personal wealth from the family behind it, as well as the company itself, and to try to make amends for the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have died. I and mean, we're talking about more people dying each year now from opioid-related overdoses and accidents right. than that died yeah. in the Vietnam War. That's well, how many, we're talking about 70,000 people a year dying now. So right. yeah, there's, there's, no, there's not even enough billions in their, in, in their war chest for themselves and whatnot to repay the loss. Um, no. That's happened to our country and this world because of this effort. There's gluttonous, rich enrichment, which is, frankly, reads much the same as what we wound up writing about in the Great Opium Wars. Yeah. And what, we, and what the United States also participated in, in the carving up of China to make sure that we got a taste of the, the huge, vast drug sales to a Chinese populace where we contributed, the United States was one of the five countries contributing to the um, drug addiction with opiates of, um, I think, uh, up to a third of all of China. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is, is that is the react and then the overreaction. I mean, as I think you say that Purdue didn't do anything different than the guy that invented morphine, the people that Bayer that invented heroin. Everyone thought they had a way to do it. Um, the guy that invented the syringe, you know, it was a guy, uh, figured, yeah. okay, you're right there. You're not going to be the stomach. They think that's where appetites are. So in a way, Purdue didn't do anything wrong until they didn't test it, and they, until they started making false claims. And so that's that's the trouble. People are just looking for this thing, and they're dreaming, and then they're spending all this mo money. Money corrupts. Right. <laughs> you know, money right. just corrupts. And, um, if, and then what happened is the thing John was talking about is then you're going to have people under-medicated so it's it's such a terror, and I, I don't know if people are getting a lot of morphine at this end of life pain for for uh, uh, COVID. I've been meaning to ask John that because that's all I'd say if I had to make sure I have morphine. But that means people right. are going to come out of this. There's a lot of pain associated with it, and I mean, mm -hmm. if you knew what you were doing, you wouldn't either give too much or too little. You would manage the pain, you know. But we're not right. managing the pain. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and so he, here we are in, in a way you're this kind of <laughs> throughout history, this back and forth, this kind of war of kind of trying to, to, to crush it and control it and having all the consequences of that. And then back and forth to uh, a new way of trying to deal with this to uh, you call for you know, a, a different approach, a harm reduction approach, a compassionate, as we kind of said earlier, kind way of dealing with this issue because we do have pain we have to manage. That's right. That's right. That's good. And there are a lot of different strategies we could be using that we're not that we're not using, some of which we've touched on in terms of from safe injection sites to prevent disease and overdose to um, the research that John's talking about and the courts get it out of the, 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 the court system. There are ways to go, but people, is, they're the political will to, to do it. Because some of them on the surface, when you say, oh, let's, uh, let's, let's open a place in downtown though. We're gonna let people shoot up safely. It's like, that's not a real pop. That doesn't go down real well. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, it's gonna save police time. In fact, in Germany, when they started doing it, the police were horrified and then they started seeing the results and they said, okay, this, this is, is the way to go. Better. There are drug counselors on site. It's not you just going and getting shot, shot up. You know. So for the worst of the worst in Germany, they allow not just compassionate use sites, they allow heroin replacement. replacement so right. there's German government provided uh, diacetyl morphine, which is the scientific name for, for heroin. And right. when one of these centers opens up, of course, it would cause tremendous controversy and the police were adamantly opposed. Now, when there's a debate about opening up another one of these centers, there can be an argument over where, because they noted about an 80% reduction in petty crime. In a oh, three yeah. kilometer exactly. radius. So bicycles aren't getting stolen, cars aren't getting you know broken into, the crime rate goes down. And these people that are not willing to stop yet are getting instructions on keep making it safer yeah there's safe ne there's clean needles but how about they're stopped if they're injecting at one specific point all the time building up what's called a stoma which causes turbulence in how your heart pumps blood around your your circulatory system and that turbulence can make it easy for bacteria to stick on to your heart causing endocard bacterial endocarditis which will kill you so it's really important to not inject through the same spot, building up this like this little tower that you like a, a, an actual your own little, hep, you know, um, yeah, heparin yeah. Port. and but and and when somebody feels like they are ready to then quit or to get help, all the services are there for them. Yeah, and, we could use and, so many more drug counselors than we have. I mean, you shouldn't. I mean, I don't want to say shouldn't, but if someone's going in to get medication-assisted treatment, or someone's going in to get uh, a, a safe injection site, there should be someone available who's smart, to who's smart, who understands it, can be compassionate, and isn't going to expect them to get clean the first time. There's such a rejection of, yeah. of treating these people that our, our country's woven in 12-step programs into the laws in many states, that you have to go to AA or NA. I'm sorry, but right. as a physician, I don't have the luxury to say, well, you haven't hit bottom yet. You're not going to accept treatment. We'll wait till you need it. Now, AA and NA have moved on from saying things like that. You haven't hit bottom yet. I have not heard anybody talk like that for like 15, 20 right. years, really. Okay, I'm so proud of people who are very active in 12-step programs, making it what it is, saving millions and millions of people. Absolutely. 
But what do we do for the people that it just doesn't, they don't want it. They don't respond to it. Instead of just rejecting them, we have to help them too. And, Absolutely. And, 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 and not just make it that there's one, you know, one size fits all. You said it really well that, you know, we have to be able to explain things that's more nuanced than just making it reducible to a black and white issue. I believe we can talk about all of these issues including accepting how these drugs may have utility and may be used in medicine, may have other purposes, and still saying a very clear and powerful message, uh, counseling and cautioning against the abuse of the substance, that both can be held at the same time, that we can have the room to allow these opiates to be prescribed as well as caution about how they can be addictive and cause problems and be trafficked. I mean, I technically can prescribe cocaine as a topical anesthetic, I don't think the, the fact that I have the power to do that, that that's what's fueling people illicitly buying cocaine on the street. Similarly, right. labeling heroin and other opiates as drugs of abuse doesn't um, erase the fact that they are medicines. In the United States, in fact, a bizarre law, but when heroin was made illegal, it was such an important medicine, though, that the law, the federal law says that existing stockpiles can be used up uh, they, they even after it was made a little after it was made illegal, and my father, as a resident, when he was in his residency in the early fifties, um, he had a woman come in who's about to give childbirth. He used heroin. I asked him why. Right. He said, well, look, it, she's in extreme pain. Which med, which of the opiates that I had available to me then is the fastest rate of onset to give her pain relief? I said, well, you know, it's going to be heroin. And he's like, correct. I said, well, why did you do this? I, said, I just told you why. Do you think I have to worry about this pregnant woman giving birth that she's going to become addicted because it, it gave her the relief that fast? Don't you understand when somebody gets that drug and there's no purpose to it and they get quote unquote relief that fast, that's what makes it so addictive, John. Right, right. And my patient who's giving childbirth, that's not in the forefront of her mind. She just wants the pain relief while she's going through this. See, so heroin was a great medicine. I was very happy to have it available to me back then. But it's now that it's 100% Schedule One drug in the United States, we send this confusing message that it has no safe parameters of use. There's no safe way to use it. Well, that's just right. not, that's not true. And it creates, these types of hidden stories create other worst type of stories. So ominously, Adolf Hitler was addicted to an analog of heroin. Maybe some speed. I don't think he needed heroin to be a cold-hearted, um, psychopathic, right. uh, evil monster. But it definitely upgraded his evilness, right? Because absolutely addicted yeah. to that. How much? How much emotion? You know, actually sunk in. Yeah. Totally. Because we're not talking about what these drugs do. We're not accepting how they are medicines and they have these horrible side effects and the extreme versions of those side effects when we see somebody addicted. And then we punish them as if they had full volitional choice when it's causing changes to their brain over time. Yeah. Even stopping Prozac after a year, your sleep architecture is different. A year later, are we going to say that you know that's a highly dangerous drug because we don't know the significance of it even Every with drug. even Every with, drug. what you about the like, benzos i mean See? right I mean, sherlock holmes you know seven percent solution best detective of all time it'd be albeit fiction you know the hallucinogens that are the core of many spiritual traditions they're also yeah. used you know so it, that's why we wanted to do the changing our minds people are gonna want to change their minds and uh you know right 
we hate we hate having to realize that everyone's an individual. <laughs> Something about yeah. this, it's that notion. Well, that's no. what I that's what I I hear you, hear you guys saying as as you're talking about this. We have to open this up and and look at everything um, not from these black and white perspectives, but open it up and uh, from the human perspective. I would say from 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 a uh, a compassionate look at our humanity and how suffering is out there all, all the time and we and we're going to look for ways to to change suffering and then that's just part of it and we can be compassionate to each other in that process i mean in some ways this goes beyond just opium and drugs but to our society as a whole but um so we we are starting to get come up on our time here so i i want to i want to each ask you like what would be one thing you'd want to say to the listeners out there? Um, what message would you want to give them? I'd say don't beat yourself up. Don't beat that's yourself up. up. That's the first first thing I'd say. Try to find help if you can. You're not wrong. You're not a bad person. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, ask for help. You know, be kind to yourself and ask for help. I guess that would be my my quick one. Ask for help. I love it. So I hope that books like ours help in creating that discussion that needs to happen across all those um, family tables when we get through the COVIDiacy and get to reunite with our extended families. Um, and so Opium, How an Ancient Flower Shaped and Poisoned Our World is just went to paperback. And I think that maybe that can help with some of the discussion, but also it's a burden on people in recovery. A lot of people then look to them like they they have to be the the explainer to everybody. That now, on top of everything else, now they're supposed to represent something and, and provide answers to an extended community. You know, everybody just wants to be a regular civilian for a reason. We just want to fit in and 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 deal with the problems of life and not have to take on more. There are some people who are heroic like this and have an feel it's an important necessity to make our voices heard. Thank you for being one of those. Thank you so much for doing this because not everybody is willing to, right? But maybe the fact that like our book could be published by a, a mainstream publisher is to try to help lift that burden on people's shoulders that are in recovery. You know, I don't want to have yeah. to explain everything. Why you read about the history? There's a real history to be read about it. And let's talk after that, after you've done that. Don't just come to me and start asking me and start asking me for explanations. How can people find your book? Where can they go? Uh, is there a website that you guys have that uh, yeah. if they want to know more? It's published by Hachette. And uh, if they search, uh, you know, opium, Blistana, opium, Halpern, but mainly go to your independent local bookstore, <laughs> you know, call oh. them up on the phone. No offense to the big ones, but go to your local independent bookstore and say you want that new book on opium. And if they don't have it, they'll get it to you as fast as you can probably get it mail order anyway. And uh, that's what I say. It's awesome. a fairly major publisher, so it'll be in most places, but go there, shop local. Well, it's a it's a great read. I really I really enjoyed it, and um, really going through the history like that and the ways in which you guys did it really just firms up what you guys are saying um, of this compassion care. And so I appreciate the, the work that you, you guys put into it and, and would encourage people who are interested in that to, to go out and get it and read it. 
It's an awesome book. So thank, thank you guys so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. Yeah, fascinating. Awesome. Thank you I for like having what us. You're doing. We've listened to some. I like what you're doing. It's great. Ah, thanks. All right. Once again, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. I really appreciate it. You can find all the show notes at the addictedmind.com forward slash 114. If you're enjoying the podcast, please think about sharing it with a friend. And uh, yeah, please do that. Be awesome. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And uh, I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.